Good afternoon. I had the privilege a few years ago of preaching in Brooklyn, and the pastor asked me, Andy, are you a saint? And I said, yes. He had that twinkle in his eye. Maybe you've heard this. I had never heard it to this point. And he goes, well, you know what a saint is. And I was like, well, yes, I, it's a holy one. That's what the New Testament means. He goes, no, 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 no. A saint, it means Sunday afternoon is nap time. And I said, I am a saint. <laughs> am I speaking to some saints this afternoon? Okay. Well... May God give us energy and mental focus. I will seek to be efficient as we look at the Word. So let's get right to it, okay? As you see, we are in 1 John once again. And though our text is, I'm going to read eventually verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. My main text is verses 1 and 2. Of chapter 2. So let me read 1 John 2, 1 and 2 this afternoon. But keep your Bible open because I will reference the last part of chapter 1. My little children, these things write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The purpose of 1 John is to help believers know that they have eternal life. We learn that eternal life is a person, Jesus Christ. What, though, causes Christians more than anything else to doubt whether we have eternal life, sin. So the question I have for you this afternoon, what do you do with your sin? If we were to go to downtown Beaverton, Michigan, this afternoon, and we were to talk to people who were walking around or shopping or doing whatever they do on Sunday afternoon we were to pull different people aside and say, can I just ask you a question? What do you do with your sin? How do you handle your guilt? What do you expect might be heard? Oh, I imagine we get all sorts of different answers, particularly if we ask a stranger, they may look at us and say, what are you talking about? What do I do with my sin? Someone might say this, do you know something that I don't know? I've tried to hide it. What do you know? A lot of people try to hide their sin. Other, someone else might say this, sin, I don't know what you're talking about. They've completely renamed it. They have different terms for it to deal with their guilt. Someone else might say, guilt, that's what the pills are for. Someone else uh, might say, sin, you know, you, you, you go to one of these churches in town, don't you? See, it's you Christians. You Christians are the reason why we have so much anger and hatred and, and intolerance in this world. And, and, and they eventually they move off the subject of sin entirely and start blame shifting. 
Someone else, if they're being real honest with you, say, well, if you keep this to yourself, I don't know what, I, what to do with my guilt. I, they self-harm. Or they've even considered ending things. There are all sorts of reasons, but I imagine we're not going to do that to anyone out in town. But I do pose the question to people who claim to be followers of Jesus, what do you do with your sin? How do you handle your guilt? Jonathan Edwards in his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his very famous sermon, he said these words, quote, sin is the ruin and misery of the soul, end quote. Am I speaking to someone that sin has been messing you up recently? Maybe you have tried to ignore it. Maybe you've tried to hide it. Maybe you've tried to medicate the guilt. I'm not saying that medicine isn't good and helpful for various things, but when we start using it for guilt, that's an entirely different matter. You feel dirty, you feel defeated, miserable, helpless, hopeless. You find yourself in failure or some bondage to some addiction. What do you do with your sin? Sin robs the Christian of her assurance that she does possess eternal life. Unconfessed and undealt with sin in the Christian's life causes him to wonder, as Peter says, have I even been cleansed from my sin? Am I even a believer? Again, John wants to give us confidence that we do, in fact, possess eternal life. So we've got to do something with our sin. And this is the passage that we have before us today. What I'd like to show you from 1 John, particularly chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John gives us, I believe, two ways to deal, for the Christian to deal with sin. The first way is this, run from sin. How do I deal with sin? Don't do it. That's the first and the best way. The second way is far more frequent in our lives and yet far more glorious, only by His grace. And that is, run to Jesus when you sin. So there you go. Let's look at these two ways that we are told to deal with sin. Number one, we are told run from it. You want to keep assurance. You want to keep a a right uh, feeling of of, uh, fellowship with God. Then don't sin. Run from it. Would you look at chapter 2, verse 1? My little children. Here's an old man writing to people younger in the faith. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. John here does not want Christians to sin. Now, let's look at some words here. He says, these things I write to you. When I was in college and first learning how to preach, I was taught this, that uh, gentlemen, when you preach, avoid the use of the word thing, because nobody knows what you're talking about when you say thing. You know, the preacher gets up and says, today I want to look at three things. Ay, 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 what are we going to be talking about? No... John didn't take my homiletics class in college because he says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. What are the things he's talking about? 
well, I think you, you figured this out. It's what he has just written at the end of verse of chapter number one. So here's where I want to just briefly go back to pick up where we left off this morning. Would you look at verse five of chapter one? I'm going to read through verse 10. This is the message which we have heard from him. Remember, we have heard and seen Jesus. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. This is saying that God is holy. There is no unholiness in him. God is light, there is no darkness. God is pure, there is no impurity. And when you receive God into your life, you get in in your life comes He who is the light. You now have an entirely new relationship with sin. Romans talks about we have died to sin. Here we have the light within us. This is the message, God is light, in Him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we, those who have the light, those believers, Christians, if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here, the Christian has made a decisive break with sin. We are those who are walking in the light. We are no longer walking in the darkness, but when we behave as though we are, or no, when we are walking in the darkness, and yet we say that we are walking in the light, we are actually lying, we are still lost, we are not saved. That's where he's getting at. He's not talking about a Christian who behaves as though they are lost. He's talking about a lost person saying, oh no, I'm saved. But he says, we are now walking in the light We are no longer walking in the darkness. We have a new position, a new relationship with sin. So verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So, let me try to summarize these verses. We're not really going to do an exposition of these verses, but let me just summarize. Because you have God in your life, you're now walking in the light. You have a new relationship to sin. And so in verse number 8, let me tell you what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is painfully aware that he has sin. Did you know you cannot be a Christian until you acknowledge that you have sin, that something is wrong in you? A Christian is someone who knows, I have sin in my life. But in verse number 10, a Christian is also someone who agrees with God that he has sinned, that he is a sinner. You cannot be a Christian until you say, yes, God, you are right and I am wrong. You are holy and I am unholy. This is what a Christian is. A Christian knows not only that he has sinned, but that he has sinned. He agrees with God. And so verse number 9, you love 
1 John 1, 9, and so do I. A Christian is someone who hates that he has sinned. A Christian is someone who grieves that she has disobeyed God. And the Christian is someone who comes frequently saying, I have sinned, would you cleanse me and uh, forgive me of that sin? And God forgives and cleanses the sinner again of his or her sin. Why? Because verse number 7, the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse us of all sin. Okay? So here's a summary of that. And as we come into chapter 2, John says, My beloved, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, my little children, I have told you these glorious truths at the end of chapter 1, so that you may not sin. No other blood removes the stain of iniquity. The Christian knows this. The Christian has experienced this. I ask you, do you know this forgiveness? Do you know this cleansing? Now, this is a great truth that Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. But with that great truth comes a great temptation. And that temptation is is this. If God has forgiven me of my sin then why should I ever feel guilty about my sin? It goes something like this. Shouldn't I enjoy more sin so I can enjoy more forgiveness? Doesn't God get more glory for forgiving more sin? I mean, hey, the Bible teaches no sin that I do as a Christian is beyond the blood of Jesus. Glorious. Hallelujah. I can sin I can still win. I can do what I want and always get forgiveness. That is a temptation that every Christian faces. But I ask you this question. Is this why God forgives the Christian's sin? So we can go out and enjoy more sin. No. How do we know that? Well, what does John say? My little children, these things I write to you so that you don't sin. I am telling you and reminding you again about the forgiveness of God so you don't keep on sinning. God has saved us from our sin. He has not saved us so we can sin all we want. The apostle put it this way in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so God's grace may abound? God forbid, may you never think that. That's scandalous. That's monstrous to think about. How shall we, those who have died to sin, live any longer therein? The purpose of our salvation is not so we can sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God. What does the Lamb of God do? Takes away sin. So that's why as we come to verse number 1... A Christian is someone who does not abuse the forgiveness of God. Let me use an analogy that breaks down at some point, but an analogy nonetheless. Do you have a driver's license? Before you had your driver's license, it is illegal in this state, and the state in which I live, to get behind the wheel of a car, without another licensed driver particularly, and drive. My children are in the process of getting their license. 
They have restrictions upon them. Oh, but once they get that license with the beautiful picture on it, then they're free to get behind the wheel of any vehicle in their class and they can drive wherever they want. I'm afraid that so many times we use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to do whatever we want. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you treat 1 John 1, 9 like a license to sin? Do you say, I can enjoy this sin for a while because after all, I can always get forgiveness? I know it's wrong, but God is loving. He has promised to forgive. I'll just enjoy it, then I'll later confess it and everything will be okay. Have you ever followed that train of thought? If so, as I have, then you and I have forgotten two major things. (laughs) We have forgotten the command of Christ and we have forgotten the cross of Christ. Think about the commands all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. We are told to run from sin. Don't do it. Do not pursue it. It'll burn you. It'll hurt you. There are consequences. I think about 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22 in which we are specifically told to flee, run from youthful lusts, but actually follow God's righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are told specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, 18... Flee, run away from fornication. This is, of course, sexual immorality. Colossians 3 and verse 5, mortify your members which are on the earth. Now, we use the word mortify today like humiliation, like we just ate, and then someone comes to us and says, you have something green in your teeth. Oh, I was mortified. That's not what mortify here means. It doesn't mean humiliation. It means homicide. It means take the mortality out of it. Take the life out of it. Did you know the New Testament tells you to be a killer? Who knew? But be a killer of the fleshly desires, the sinful desires of our body and our imagination and our thoughts. Put them to death. God has commanded us to kill sinful actions and behaviors and thoughts in our life. When we cling to 1 John 1, 9 as a license, a free pass to do whatever we want because I'll just get forgiveness. We have forgotten the commands of Jesus. We are a rebel. And then I put it to you this way. We are a scandal to the rest of creation. Even the ox and the donkey obeys its master. But we rebel against our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Sin is the opposite of God's glory. Are you concerned for the glory of God? Are you concerned about His name, His importance? I know you are. When we are, we will work at putting sinful desires to death. But using 1 John 1, 9 to do whatever we want as a free pass to sin, we have forgotten Christ's command, but more tragically, we have forgotten Christ's cross. Jesus was crushed to free us from sin. 
not so we can cherish it. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, Sin has been pardoned at such a price that we cannot henceforth trifle with it, end quote. Is there a sin you are trifling with? Has the Holy Spirit been bringing up in your mind and your life this week a particular sin habit, a particular sin thought pattern, a particular sin desire that you've been trifling, playing around with, indulging, keeping alive? Make no mistake, God does not treat that sin as lightly as you do. How does God view sin? Look at the cross. For your sin, Jesus was struck down by God. For your transgression, He was wounded by God. For your iniquities, Jesus was crushed by God. Chris Anderson, a friend of of mine, a pastor, he has likened sin to a vicious dog that tore into the flesh and body and heart of Jesus on the cross. That's your sin and mine. How dare we take that vicious dog and treat it like a lap pet? We love our sin. We stroke our sin. We feed our sin. We nurture our sin. We protect our sin. How dare we? It ripped into Jesus on the cross. The Christian must never make peace with sin, fight it, hate it, kill it, strangle it. The fight with sin is a fight to the death. It is a no, take no prisoners endeavor. We must inflict deep wounds to our fleshly desires. Are you downplaying sin? Are you shifting blame? Are you arguing for your innocence? If so, You have a high view of you and a low view of God. Is there a sin the Holy Spirit is calling you to repent of today? Then do so. John is saying it is glorious that we can confess our sin. It is glorious we can find that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But I'm telling you that so you won't sin. Run from it. Now, that's the first way, and I would say the better way to deal with sin. Don't even go there. But you are going to sin, aren't you? Of course you are. You know why? You're a sinner. Guess what sinners do? We sin. But when you sin, Christian, there's no need for despair. There's no need for discouragement. There is no need for depression of soul over your sin. Because God knows His children are going to return to sin. Like a dog to its vomit. And so He has done something for His people. He has given us an advocate. So we see the first The first way to deal with sin is run from sin. But number two, and we'll close with this one, run to Jesus when you sin. Look back at verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we, 
John includes himself. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, the Father has assigned His children an advocate. Amen, Andy. That's good preaching. If I only knew what an advocate was, I could be excited with you. Let me give some synonyms. A friend. A lawyer. A defense attorney. The word advocate is the idea of someone who comes alongside and argues on your behalf. Who pleads your case. So, this is speaking of when a Christian sins. When you have sinned against God and you will again. When you have sinned against God and you, you take 1 John 1, 9 and you, you, you bow your knee in prayer once again to confess your sin before a holy God, seeking His forgiveness, the picture that opens before us is that we have entered into the very courtroom of God. We have a prayer on our lips We are seeking His forgiveness. We are wanting the cleansing, the daily cleansing once again for our sin. And we have entered into His courtroom. What I want to show you here from John is that far more than perhaps what you realize is going on when the Christian confesses sin. There are several people in the courtroom of God as you come to confess your sin. First off is, let's use courtroom terminology, first off is the accused. The one who is standing there accused of guilt, accused of of wrongdoing. In our scenario here of your confession prayer, who is the accused? Yes, you are. I am. We are the ones guilty of breaking the law of God. We are the ones seeking forgiveness. Later on in 1 John 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of God's law. So the accused is you, me. Then there's someone else in the courtroom, and that is in the position of the judge, the one who is hearing the arguments. Now, I hasten to say that in this particular scenario, as a Christian, you are praying not to a judge, but to your heavenly Father. Yet he sits in that position, and this is the Lord himself. This is the author of the law you broke. But then in every courtroom, you've seen a lot of courtroom dramas. Hopefully you haven't been in too many scenarios your own self in the justice system, but nonetheless, you've seen this before. There is also the prosecution in every courtroom. And and here the prosecution is the one who is bringing the burden of proof. Who's in the prosecution? Well, heading the prosecution, it's actually a prosecution team. Heading the prosecution, of course, is the accuser of the brethren. Who is that? Satan himself, the enemy of our soul, we know in Revelation 12, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And in fact, wouldn't you know it, Satan appeals to justice. He cries out, sinner, hypocrite, failure, worthy of condemnation. Here is the head of the prosecution. But did you know there is someone else on the prosecution team? You might not have ever thought of this before, but God's word is on the prosecution team. 
This is the law that you and I have broken. It is God's standard of righteousness, His holy law. We have thwarted God's word. His very law stands as a testimony and a witness against us that we have, in fact, done wrong. There's someone else on the prosecution team. Maybe you've never thought of this. You know who else is on the prosecution team? You are. Has your own heart ever condemned you? 1 John 3 and verse 20 talks about our hearts condemning us. Have you ever gotten time to pray and you know you've done wrong once again and you say, Lord, Father, here I am again, and instantly your mind starts saying, what a hypocrite you are. Oh, you think it's going to stick this time? Do you think God's going to listen to you this time? How could, a, how could a Christian be like you? How could a Christian think like this? How could a Christian act like this? Are you even saved? Your own heart's condemning you. All this is going on when you come to the Father to say, I need your forgiveness. And so the Father, listening to your prayer, says, Christian, I have heard and you have heard the accusations against you. Your own heart, my word, the accuser of the brethren. We have heard the accusations. Christian, do you have a defense for your actions? And here you, the accused, will say this. No, sir, I have no excuse. I am guilty. You know what that's called? Confession. It is to agree with God that I am wrong and that He is right. I am saying the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. I am guilty. I have no defense. So the Father says this. Well, very well. If you have no defense, you shall have a court-appointed lawyer to speak on your behalf. You want my forgiveness? You are obviously guilty. You need someone to speak for you. And in my mind, through the side door, <laughs> comes your advocate, your court-appointed lawyer, your defense attorney. You watch him, he comes up right next to you, and your advocate leans to you, the accused, and says, don't worry, leave everything to me. I've never lost a case. Then he turns to the father and he says, hello, father. And you think, who is my defense attorney? Who is my advocate? We are told in verse number one, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There is a face-to-face relationship between your advocate and the Father to whom you are praying. In other words, when you confess your sin, you have the Lord Jesus Himself coming alongside you, pleading your forgiveness or pleading on your behalf, arguing for you. Now, let me just pause here and give you, let me give a brief parenthesis here, and I want to give you two reasons why Jesus is the perfect advocate for you when you sin, okay? Here's the first reason, because He is just like you. Did we not learn today that He who was in the form of God came down to this earth and He took upon Him flesh? 
the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He knows what it is to be a man. He knows the power of temptation. In fact, he knows a power of temptation you don't know because he never gave in. He experienced the full temptation of sin. He he comes along beside you. He knows where you're coming from. He's been in your shoes just without sin. He knows you. He's just like you. He's the perfect advocate for you before the Father. Let me give you a second reason why Jesus is the perfect advocate for you. Because He's nothing like you. Yes, He is man, but He is the God-man. He has experienced the temptation, and yet He has never sinned. What is he called? Jesus Christ the righteous. Look, if this advocate, if this man Jesus had sin, he would need an advocate of his own. But this man has no sin. He is the perfect advocate for you. Let's close that parenthesis. Let's come back to our confession prayer. So, you have sinned, you have come before the Father, your heart's condemning you, the Word of God is a witness against you, Satan is crying for justice. You have no defense, your advocate comes, he's going to plead for your forgiveness. What is he going to say? Well, let's think about good defense lawyers. There are a lot of tools in their toolbox, this is not original with me. I heard this from someone else and it was good, so I'm going to borrow it. Will Jesus <laughs> will Jesus plead insanity on your behalf? Father, you need to forgive her because she didn't know what she was doing. No, you knew what you were doing. In fact, you've already admitted your guilt. Is he going to argue a legal loophole? Father, you need to forgive him because, well, I found a, I found a loophole in your law to get him off. No, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete, it's whole. Is he going to argue good behavior? Father, forgive her because, after all, she's a good girl. No, the very fact that you are confessing your sin is proof you are not a good girl. You are a bad girl. That's why you're seeking, as a Christian, for God's forgiveness. (laughs) Every good defense at some point pleads the merit of the accused, the goodness. But Jesus does not plead your goodness. He does not argue your goodness. He argues... His goodness. Here's the $5 Sunday word. He argues propitiation. Did you notice that in verse 2? And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Oh my goodness. Don't you like Sunday only words? These are the words we only use on Sunday, you know. This is an everyday word propitiation. What does this mean? Jesus, the righteous one, he is the sacrifice that had, the atoning sacrifice that has satisfied God's wrath on our sin. He has removed the wrath. 
He is our propitiation. Many Christians wrongly think that when they confess sin, God somehow has a magic forgiveness wand. Oh, you want forgiveness? Sure. I'll just swoop this over your head and all is forgiven. But God is too holy to just dismiss sin and act like it never happened. Something has to be done with your sin. May I put it bluntly, someone has to die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is, right? It's your paycheck. Did you earn your wage? You better believe it. Give me what's coming to me. It's payday. The wages of sin is death. And by the way, you've earned your death. You worked hard for your death. And there is a payday coming. Oh, but for the Christian who has received Jesus Christ understands this, though I I had earned death, yet I have received the gift of God. And what is the gift of God? Eternal life. This is what makes a person a Christian. Well, we know this. Something has to be done with your sin. Somebody has to die. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness and remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin if there is no death, bloody sacrifice of Christ. And that's what happened on the cross. At Calvary, Jesus suffered the wrath meant for you. He drank in full the cup of God's wrath toward our sin. Do not sit here and think that Jesus on the cross was somehow a force field shield. Hey, everybody get behind me. I'm going to protect you from the wrath of my Father. No, on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath. He, I like this word, he exhausted the wrath of God. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are no more under condemnation. You have passed from death to life. And it is is as though when you sin, the Father could say, Well, I know I had my wrath around here somewhere. I can't find it anymore because it's been taken away. It's been absorbed. Jesus took it all. Now God only looks on me with favor and grace. He looks on His people with grace. Now, don't get me wrong, there are still discipline and consequences to our sin. Remember point one, don't do it. It burns, it bites, it destroys. There are still consequences for our sin, but there is no more wrath, no more condemnation. Only grace and forgiveness. Okay. So here we come. We have sinned against God. We come before the Father. The condemnation or the the accusations are coming upon us. 
Jesus steps in and he argues propitiation. This is how I imagine it. These are my words. It's as though Jesus would say this when you confess your sin. Father, my client is guilty of a crime against you. He has willfully and deliberately broken your law. He justly deserves sentencing to the full extent of the law, which is death. But I remind you, Father, that I fully satisfied and exhausted your wrath on the behalf of my client. I've already paid the penalty for this sin. I've already been punished by you for this very crime. Therefore, Father, it would be unjust for you to withhold pardon. I now plead my blood for him, and I rest my case. We read in Isaiah 53, the Father will see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. My sister, my brother, this is why there's no need for despair when you sin. This is why even in the midst of consequences and the fallout that comes upon you when you have sinned, there is no need for depression. There is no need to run away from God because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. Look back at 1 John 1, 9. Have you ever noticed this? There is no mention of mercy in verse 9. Usually when I ask for forgiveness for God, I'm praying for His mercy. Oh God, be merciful. And forgiveness is a wonderful act of mercy. God withholding from us what we deserve. And God is infinitely merciful. He is rich in mercy. But 1 John doesn't talk about mercy. What does it talk about? Justice and faithfulness. If God withholds pardon from His people, if God keeps back forgiveness when we have brought it to Him, our sin, He would be unjust because His justice has already fallen on Jesus. So you see, Jesus is not only your advocate when you sin, He's your very argument when you sin. 1 John 2.2 doesn't end with the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died for sinners. But sadly, many sinners will seek to take away their own sin. Understand, God's wrath will be satisfied on your sin. I often put it this way, you have sinned, someone has to die. I didn't set that up, only God. He said, I don't like that. I don't like it either, but God didn't consult us, did He? You have sinned, someone must die. And there are only two people who can die for your sin. You, in the fiery judgment of hell for all eternity, or Jesus in your place on the cross. Choose Jesus while you still can. That's an appeal to those who are non-believing right now. That's an appeal to those who have not yet 
believed on Jesus for salvation. So if we were to go to Beaverton tonight and ask someone, what do you do with sin? And they give all the answers. The correct answer that you can give them is this. No, let me tell you what you do with your sin, Jesus. And then as we talk amongst us today, God's people, and we ask, what do you do with our sin? And we come with all these different reasons. The answer is also the same, Jesus. He was the answer to your sin before salvation. He is the answer to your sin after your conversion. What do you do with sin? Run from it. But run to Him when you sin. Father, in Jesus' name, thank You for the Scripture and teach us evermore. Give us grace to receive this. Thank You. Amen.